Welcome to the 7 Investing Podcast. My name, of course, is Daniel Klein. I'm being joined today by Robert McConaughey, Senior Vice President, Investor Relations, Advisory and Community Impact. That is a long title, at Corbin Advisors. Does that even fit on a business card, Robert? Uh, I didn't realize when looking at it. Wow, that's a lot of words. You know, it, it's uh, it's kind of like with McConaughey when I was a might hockey player. You know, it sort of reaches the name goes from your elbow to elbow. It's now the same equivalent on my my business card. I was a might hockey player myself, and uh, to protect my family, I just left my name off. I was that <laughs> bad of a hockey player. Uh, we're going to talk about ESG investing. That is environmental, social, and governance based investing. Um, but before we do that. Uh, Robert, you actually relatively recently joined Corbett Advisors, right? Why don't you take us a little bit through your background and sort of what your role is at Corbin? Sure. Um, I guess I'll start with uh, who Corbin is. Corbin is a strategic advisory firm focused on helping enterprises elevate their franchise value. And at Corbin, as you said, I, I lead the client advisory business, uh, helping corporates tell their story, um, but also, uh, and relevant to this conversation, the Community Impact Group advising corporates on their ESG strategy, as well as nonprofits on, on their strategy. And I, I come to that work um, after uh, a professional career primarily focused as a, as a buy-side investor. So I started off as an analyst and portfolio manager at Fidelity. Uh, after I left Fidelity, uh, I, was, I was managing REIT funds there. I, I founded Prudential's Real Estate Securities Investors Group and decided I, I kind of missed being a mainstream investor and came back to Citi's buy side. I ran growth research globally there. And, and I ended up at Columbia Threadneedle. And I ran Columbia Threadneedle's equity research group and was the head of equity there for 15 years. Um, as part of that, I launched their global responsible investing group. And, and that experience with ESG really intrigued me. Um, and that's been a big part of my focus since then. It intersects with my personal interests. Uh, I actually have a master's in environmental management. I've been uh, a volunteer leader uh, in conservation, education, economic development work, and try to think about sort of large-scale problem solving and the ability to take some of my professional experience and apply it to helping to fix things in the world. So I come to Corbin with a view of um, ESG is growing quite a lot. There's really interesting problems to solve. Um, but I try to wrap that in pragmatism, not that um, crusader of we need to do this. I, I deeply believe that these are the right things to do. But I think trying to advise corporates that they need to do things out of a moral imperative ultimately is kind of shaky ground to be on. You want it to be a moral imperative also based in practical business opportunities for them. So we're long-term investors at Seven Investing. We, we are buy and hold. We, we've existed uh, for about a year and a half, and we've actually never issued a sell. It's not that we never, we never will. It's just that uh, history shows us that even when we're wrong, selling ha has proven to not be the right case when you're a buy and hold investor. Does ESG investing require that mindset? Because let's look, let's look at a, you know, an Amazon, a company that has devoted itself to some ESG principles, if you were a short-term investor, there were periods where you would have missed out. Like, is this an area where if you're going to, to make an ESG pledge where you might have quarters that don't look that great? Or, you know, is it sort of by nature a long-term investing uh, mindset? You know, I do think um, it is a long-term investing mindset, but I would also say that ESG investors come to ESG investing through a lot of different lenses. What, what problem are they trying to solve? Um, how are they trying to reflect their values in, in their investments? 
And um, there's a spectrum, if I, if I blow up ESG investing into the broader sense of ESG impact responsible investing, there are people that are doing um, forms of structured philanthropy where they're lending and they get their money back at no return out to venture capitalists who are investing in early stage green investing that are quite focused on premium returns. Um, so in terms of how the ESG elements of it play out, that absolutely has to play out over time. But most ESG investors, um, I think, come to this hoping to also think about how does ESG in investing fit into their strategies uh, in terms of returns and risk in their broader portfolio. Um, so um, yes, ESG, I think, really is a uh, aligned with a sort of long-termism in terms of how do you really change things. But if you own a portfolio of ESG names and one of those stocks gets too expensive and you can buy an, another stock that you think has better value and solve similar problems, um, that might be a good decision for your portfolio from a more of an investment standpoint than an ESG standpoint. And not all ESG strategies are, are straight up and to the right. There are definitely bumps in the road. We try to take a a long-term perspective that we're looking for progress versus perfection at any point in time, but you do um, trust but verify and you're constantly looking at, you know, management's change, directions of strategies change, and your uh, assessment of an ESG strategy might change along the way as well. Is ESG something being talked about in more corporate boardrooms? I mean, it used to be kind of an anomaly that a company would sort of think of the greater good. And now is it like, a mix of public pressure slash, you know, maybe we just know a little bit more. Uh, are, are more companies just either having to or choosing to talk about this? You know, I think it's um, it's become extremely mainstream. It, you, you would be very unusual in the large to mega cap multinational companies if you didn't have an ESG program in place. Um, our surveys of, of companies that we're working with, um, our last survey had 79% of companies had an ESG program in place. And uh, my guess is the next time we run that, it will be well into the into the 80s. So I think it's it's an unusual company that doesn't have some sort of ESG program in place. How far along they are in that journey varies widely. Does um, it does it matter if it's a sort of honest belief to do better, or if it is a corporate reality of you know? And I'll give a terrible example here, but uh, Kerrig, a company that's gone in and out of being public, and they're part of a, a bigger company now with Dr Pepper and but their commitment to getting rid of waste by 2000, whatever is born out of public relations. Like, does it matter if that's what's happening or does there need to be some sincerity uh, for it to actually uh, make a real difference? Um, I like to think that things are born out of sincerity. I guess back to the point of pragmatism, um, I think even the most dyed in the wool you know, environmental activists, for example, should take comfort in companies that are not just doing things out of the goodness of their heart, but they're doing things that also align with their business goals. I think that's ultimately much more durable when it serves their business interests as well as something that they believe in. And one of the things we emphasize is that um, uh, well-integrated, thoughtful ESG programs are not just to serve uh, a slice of investors out there. They really can benefit your customers, uh, serve you in terms of attracting and retaining the right employees, help you with regulators. So there's really a wide array of stakeholders that can benefit from a thoughtful program. And that's, I think, what we see is the companies that do approach this as just a, hey, we're hearing more about this. We need to do something to keep the hippies at bay. <laughs> Ultimately, are kind of unsatisfied with their programs. That if it's hollow and un unsubstantive, 
then it just becomes a cost and a hassle and it doesn't really help you very much. The companies that really think about how does this influence our business? How can we do it in an authentic way that's consistent with our mission and values? Uh, ultimately, it becomes a value for those companies that can really help to increase sales, attract the right employees, and uh, appeal to a broader investor base. How do you help a company figure out what it should do and also sort of get the right attention? Because obviously, there are some times where you want that press release to say, we made a big donation or we've gone solar or whatever it is. There's other times where you want the public to discover that you're doing right. Sort of how do you balance those plans and, and, and sort of match the business needs? Because obviously something like solar might be a, a, an investment up front, but a long-term benefit, which can be tricky with quarter to quarter public companies. Sure. There's a concept that, you know, that, that this section, this area is fraught with lots of taxonomy. So there's lots of words that get tossed around. But, but an important one is this concept of materiality. Materiality meaning um, what is most relevant to your business. And there are ESG rating agencies that will say, here's what we deem to be material to your sector. Um, but we, we try to think about that more broadly, that for any corporate management, what is important to you in terms of um, stakeholder care? You know, what are what do your customers care about about the environment? What do your employees care about? What do regulators care about? And going through a thorough process to not say, what do you perceive is, uh, is good or green or sort of nice in the world, but what's particularly relevant to your business and your range of stakeholders? And let's go through a thorough process to really optimize how you'll invest in those things. And again, progress, not perfection. These companies are measured quarter to quarter. You do have to deliver a, a return on your investments. Um, so we don't think of this as absolutism, that this is good or this is bad, but it's what's material to you, what are your goals to move forward and improve on those metrics, and how do you ultimately make that a part of your corporate strategy rather than, you know, the term is greenwashing, how do you just sort of virtue signal and put things out there that uh, are, again, sort of ultimately hollow window dressing. We think that those um, might fool some people for a little while, but are ultimately aren't very dark durable assets to build on. Are consumers driving change? And, and, and I'll point out, you, you mentioned greenwashing and I just want to throw this one out there. Can I please have a plastic straw back? Like, or <laughs> could you put in a straw washing station? I'm totally cool carrying a straw someplace. And places like Starbucks have been really innovative with their little sippy cups and the drinks that are meant to be, to be consumed that way. But like there do seem to be a lot of things that have negative consumer impact, like the paper straws, which is basically like, you know, rolling up a piece of paper and having a drink. It, does, it doesn't work. But sort of how do you balance those things and sort of figure out the piece of it? Like any consumer could tell you that doesn't work, but here's how we could make it work. Here's what I would do to, to bring a metal straw or, or a glass straw with me. Like how do you sort of balance all those priorities and make it not just something that, look, I don't think straws were the problem. Like we, we throw away a lot of plastic cups. It doesn't seem like straws were the issue. I'm sorry to be silly here, but, but I think that's a practical no, no, example. I think, it's, I think it's a great point of um, plastic waste is a real issue that I think lots of people would recognize. When you stand back and really study plastic waste, um, thinking about a new, um, a new way of solving the straw issue is, is part of that puzzle. But the thought that like, well, now we have paper straws, we're virtuous, and we're going to keep doing everything else that we did that's harmful to the environment is not a, a really well-researched and thoughtful strategy. So um, you asked about the, the consumer. I think when you step back from 
some of the language around this in our politically polarized world, most people would like to buy products that are healthier for them, that don't harm the environment, um, and are produced ethically. You know, they're not made in sweatshops. Um, but there's the, the academic term for this is intention active action gap. So when you poll people, they all say like, oh, of course, I would pay more for those products that are ethically produced. When they actually get to the store and there's the cheap bacon cheeseburger, you know, the rubber hits the road and maybe people make a different decision. So in terms of how people are acting on that, one of the examples I like to point to is Walmart, which is not always perceived as a real uh, corporate do-gooder. But Walmart is, is nothing if not extremely practical. And I think they very well understand their customers that um, customers want choice. And there are lots of customers that want organic food. They do care about how things are produced. And Walmart wants those products on their shelves. Walmart also wants those products on their shelves to reflect their commitment to everyday low prices. So again, the simple example is food. People might like organic or ethically produced food. They want it to taste good. They don't want it to look funny. They want it to be reasonably priced. And if you can meet those other things, I think people definitely, that closes that intention action gap. I will act responsibly when things are fit my other needs, but there are some early adopters that will only shop at their farmer's market on things that were raised in, in complete purity. But where you really drive action and significant change in the world is when you actually start to get the mainstream folks that say, hey, I, these are accessible to me. I know where to find them at the store. They're affordable and it's better for the planet. So is there lots of marketing involved with this? False claims? Absolutely. But I do think the direction of travel is in a positive light because the consumer does demand it, but it's not doesn't stand in isolation from their other needs of cost and convenience and those sorts of things. My cup is made of ivory, so I am, of course, a terrible <laughs> example. No, that is a, that is a joke. Uh, the, though it might have been made at a sweatshop, we, we we don't know that answer. I'm not sure if the people at Discount Mugs uh, necessarily are using the best ethically source. But isn't Walmart kind of the best example here? Uh, a company that has sort of done the right thing in a lot of areas because it had to. And I'll point to things like uh, going to a $15 minimum wage, offering college tuition. Those aren't really things Walmart said, let's be progressive and do. They just be kind of came table stakes for hiring employees, for, for putting items on its shelves. Isn't that sort of more the model most companies are going to follow? Like, what do I need to be doing and how do I do it the right way? More so than how can I be two steps ahead of everybody else? You know, I, um, if you think about the, the concept of brands and what's really driving the U.S. economy these days, um, I'm sure you see it in, in your investing work. The, the, the Graham and Dodd approach of let's buy things that are cheap, uh, price to book, is hard to do these days. The, the U.S. economy is more and more driven by ideas, by software, and um, the bulk of the S&P 500 uh, are intangible assets. It's you know close to 85% you know, plus are intangible assets these days versus the old days where there was lots of stuff. Um, and if you think about what are intangible assets, your brand, your relationships with customers, that goes to this concept of stakeholder management. How are you maintaining good relationships with your customers, with the society around you? And ESG doesn't solve all of those problems, but ESG can be a valuable tool in that uh, conversation. So, you know, Walmart as an example, when Walmart does something, it has a big ripple effect. Uh, we have uh, you know, a number of clients that we've worked with in things like trucking and logistics. 
So lots of these companies are sort of heartland type companies that you might not think of naturally as big ESG participants. But Walmart has a program, for example, they're going to report their ESG metrics on their emissions, not just what they do in their stores, but what their whole supply chain does. So Walmart has named this project Gigaton, that they're trying to reduce a gigaton of greenhouse gas emissions. And they turn the dial a little bit every year on their vendors, just like they do with cost and other things. They say next year we need to you know, raise the bar on emissions. And when, you, when they drop that pebble, it, it creates big ripples. Um, one of the things that's interesting, though, as we get into the weeds with these companies, one of the other things that we're reading about with all the supply chain disruptions in the world, uh, it's hard to find truckers these days. Um, there's demographic changes out there. There's labor shortages. Um, and these companies, when you get into, again, what's material to you? We're not just forcing something on you. How do we think about your problems with employees, your challenges with customers? One of the things they realize that may be less apparent is on the social part of ESG, they're trying to attract a new generation of truckers. It's not just old white guys that they need going forward. Their sales approach, how do they interact with customers? Their customers are not just old white guys anymore, and they need their staff to match up culturally um, with the folks they're facing off against. So concepts around diversity, for example, are not, again, just a, we're going to do this because it's the right thing to do. It's a very practical thing for them to change and go forward and evolve their company to attract and retain the talent they need to be successful in their business. So to your, to your point of, are companies doing all of this just out of a moral imperative or do they do it because they have to? It's sort of both, but I don't think that we should just sneeze at they're doing it because they have to. The reason they're doing it because they have to is, Ultimately, customers are demanding it. If government regulation is driving it, ultimately, government is a function of what do people want to do. Those people were elected. Someone is choosing to drive priorities that make this an issue, not for everybody, but for enough people that it does matter for your business. Um, so that, again, it goes back to how we're trying to advise companies. We don't tell them you have to do this because it's the right thing to do. We try to align how do you do these things in a way that's practical for your business and becomes a real asset for you. And surprisingly, I think there's a lot of opportunities for that. So I'm going to ask this as carefully as I can, because we are not partisan or political, because basically, you know, you say the tiniest thing, it's going to alienate one side of your audience or the other. But let's say Walmart and Amazon say, we want to use 50% electric trucks by 2030 the government has to be involved there, right? Like there's an infrastructure where, okay, Tesla's building out a charger network, but the ability to have a national charging network that's going to allow some of those things to happen uh, that could modernize our, our ability to, to, to ship things, there has to be a government role in this, right? And is that super challenging in our, as you use the word polarized, we, uh, we do not have a compromise heavy government at the moment. I'm saying this as carefully as I possibly can. No, absolutely. Um, these things will come in the U.S. and around the world in, in dribs and drabs. Um, but you see some language, people saying, well, you know, ESG is a failure because it can't solve everything. And I'd say almost every really large scale problem um, that are solved usually by some combination of government, free enterprise business and um, changing perceptions of individuals out there, not by any one of those things. It has to be a combination of the, all of the above. So the example you cited of um, electric vehicles, 
what we're already seeing is a lot of this is happening in spots and what will happen will be um, a large city. And this is happening in some European cities. We'll say no large uh, traditional combustion engine trucks are going to deliver the last mile. So vans, uh, medium duty trucks within our cities. Um, and electric works pretty well on short haul uh, within city works today. You can make that the, the numbers pencil out on that. Um, the costs and the, the mileage limits for very long haul trucking, and this is a bigger issue in the United States, don't pencil out quite yet. So there's a lot of work there on hydrogen. How do you make that happen? This will be an evolution over time. And I think you will, perhaps you will see broad stroke things that the government will say across the board, um, medium duty trucks are going to be electrified. You know, maybe that would happen. I think what you're more likely to see is individual states or cities will mandate things that will allow scale for some of the, the manufacturers to grow and reduce their costs. Others will get on board and things will grow in a more evolutionary sense. And then it starts to become more in reach where you can get those more broad strokes sorts of things. But most major change, uh, and we've seen it with some of the green energy requires, again, a combination of, of all of the above. Um, so I, I, ultimately, I think solving some of these problems is expensive. Um, and I, I have arguments with some of my more conservative um, friends that have a, have a negative feeling towards ESG and looking at it as just costs imposed by do-gooders on free enterprise. And I, I think if you think of it the other way, I think most people would recognize that, um, you know, going back a few years, you know, that smog was a problem, you know, like, you know, and... So how do you deal with that? Do you want that just to be a function of government regulation? Or do you want the free enterprise system to come up with better, cheap solutions to, to innovate around that? That the latter feels like a, a fairly conservative free enterprise concept to me. And it's usually not one or the other, but I think you do want to create the right incentives to unleash free enterprise to solve these problems. If people have a profit motive and they take a run at things, there's, there's plenty of green energy companies that have failed out there. Um, it's not a guarantee that you just hang a shingle and say, we're green, that you're going to succeed. But that's what we want. That's how the system works and how it generates innovation in, in any field. And solving these big problems, um, again, is going to require all hands on deck. Well, to quote a noted philosopher, it is not easy being green. Uh, oh, God, <laughs> that was not a great joke. Um, as we start to wrap up here, is, is ESG part of a, an overall uh, be less evil uh, perception for most companies, because I think the reality is it's really tricky because you can look at a Walmart and see all the things wrong, but you can also go, wait a minute, Walmart like democratized an awful lot of products for an awful lot of people and, and made them accessible. You can look at an Amazon and say, geez, conditions in their warehouse uh, are, are rumored to be not good, but I can get all sorts of items. And how many hundreds of thousands of six-figure jobs ha have they created? So it's not sort of all black or all white for anything. Is this just something that every company has to think about is perception on, on every level from how they operate to, to sort of how they, uh, you know, how they treat their employees? Um, yes. I mean, I think all those things, like you said, are if you want to attract and retain employees these days, you know, most businesses in the United States are trying to climb the ladder, the, the, the cliche that software is eating the world. They, they want to attract the best and the brightest engineers to uh, do the data analysis so they know their customers better, they can deliver better solutions. Um, if you want to attract and retain those sorts of people, um, 
you better have a culture that's going to attract them. Those, those kinds of people tend to care about uh, how you treat your employees, how you, what your company's footprint is in the world. I do. One of the things that we advise companies is if you approach your ESG just trying to, as a risk mitigation exercise, to, to be less evil, as you said, <laughs> you're going to be less successful than you are if you think of it in terms of how do we really make this an asset, uh, a benefit to us in dealing with all of our different stakeholders. Now, absolutely, it's really important to avoid unnecessarily regulatory risk, for example. So risk mitigation can be an important part of why you're doing ESG. But ultimately, you know, we really emphasize, we, we do ESG-focused investor presentations for people. But we emphasize out of doing ESG investor presentations that you also want to take those materials and messages and drive them to your, into your sales channels for your customers, into your recruiting channels in terms of going on campus and attracting the next generation of, of engineers. Um, if you take just a let's be less evil approach, then that's a, that doesn't work. But I do think it's important to realize that there are things in this world that we need, like cement, that is uh, energy intensive to build. Now, there's lots of really interesting things going on as to how can you make that less energy intensive? How can you capture carbon processes from that and do it in a way that's affordable? Um, so doing necessary things, not deindustrializing the world to get to some sort of green nirvana that uh, puts lots of people out of work. Um, is, uh, is important, you know, making steady progress along the way. And it is a matter of optimizing where do we want to go in terms of environmental progress, social justice issues, and how do we make that palatable um, to the general public along the way? Uh, one of the, the clearest examples of that, there are people that feel the urgency of um, climate action demands a very aggressive carbon tax. The challenge that you have, and you saw it last year in France with some of the strikes, is if you do something that's too wrenching to society, you can get a real backlash. There's a point of, you know, how do you do things in a way that's optimizing for steady progress going forward on, on these issues? And I think that's particularly for corporations that, as you said, have to manage perceptions quarter to quarter. We are trying to help them find that steady path towards really tangible and significant longer term gains but in a way that they can deliver uh, to all their stakeholders, including to the bottom line consistently along the way as well. So I view ESG, and this is probably going to be the last question, a lot like healthcare, where I personally can go see my personal trainer three times a week. I can get preventative care. I can do all the things in the short term that cost money uh, that aren't necessarily fun to do, or I could do nothing grow to 700 pounds, and then eventually have a big bill. Now, for me, that choice is obvious. If I'm a CEO trying to hold on to my job, that choice is not that obvious because quarter by quarter results matter. Do we need a, a functional change in how we view companies? Because I think with your Amazons of the world, we've been willing to accept when they say we're making investments. We haven't even been that willing on, say, a Netflix if they say we're going to gain 30 million subscribers in the year and they gain 28 million in the first quarter and five in the second, in the third quarter, we say, geez, why are the numbers so bad when they've already hit their goals? How do we change perception in the investing world? Uh, do, maybe, do we need to get rid of quarterly reporting? Do we, do we need to de-emphasize it? Do we need to train the media? I'm not really sure what the answer is here. Well, you know, um, this is an interesting question. And I do think, um, 
one of you, you've mentioned Amazon a couple of times, and I'd go back to it. Amazon's no, never really cared too much about their quarter-to-quarter reporting, and Amazon seems to have done pretty well in the in the markets. So the market is definitely willing to invest in long-term growth stories there, where you're constantly reinvesting and not just delivering cash back to shareholders. So whether it's ESG or whether it's an industrial company trying to go from just making machines to making smart machines that uh, connect with the internet of things and make better decisions for their customers. You can choose to just you know, grind it out, be the low cost producer and not invest in that next level of customer service. That has not served companies very well, you know, sticking with a cash producing buggy whip company. Um, you have to invest in something for the future or you get eaten. And particularly in the US, I think uh, we're an economy of ideas. If you're just a low-cost manufacturer of stuff in a globalized economy, there's going to be people around the world that can make stuff cheaper than, than you can. The U.S. economy has been really successful on making the best and most innovative solutions in the world. And I think ESG fits into that in terms of how do you invest in things that elevate your brand, invest in your relationships with customers, and solve big problems. And these, this is a big market. I, I do think there's, there's no question that the world is investing significantly in decarbonizing its economy. The world is thinking very hard you know, about, and the, the, not to be too political, but just you just see populism around the world. On both ends of the political spectrum, people are questioning the nature of markets, government, et cetera. And if corporations do not act wisely and in concert with the societies around them, there will be a cost at some point. It's the 700 pound you know, guy piece. And that's where boards come in. That's where activist shareholders come in. But there's just no question that the direction of travel is that this has gone from being viewed as just a cost that's imposed on, on people to done right, implemented. Um, this is a real opportunity. We, we pull investors and uh, the uh, 56% of the investors that we pull say that ESG is associated with a long-term outperformance of businesses. It's again, not a not a cost, but long-term outperformance. And we also see that when we pull companies that they believe that long-term implementation of these strategies is good for their franchise value. Um, and I think that is the truth. Yes, there, there may be some near-term investment, but just like any sort of innovation, um, it has to be viewed and you have to generate returns on it. If you don't implement it well, then it's just a cost. If you get a real return on it in terms of uh, serving your customers effectively, attracting, retaining the right employees, reducing regulatory risk, then that's a, um, that's a positive asset in a world filled with uh, intangible assets these days. Robert McConaughey, thank you for illuminating, for uh, sharing a lot in an area that uh, I, I think a lot of us try to be responsible investors, but then it does become a lot like when you go to the store and you're looking to buy a 65-inch television and one costs $289 and one costs $690. And you're like, well, like that $289 one, like, yeah, it's probably made by Oompa Loompas in a, in a, in a slave factory somewhere, but boy, it's a lot cheaper. So I, I thank you for giving us the levels of this. Is there anything else we're missing uh, as, as I'm going to assume most of us are semi-responsible people, we're, we're trying to invest in good uh, for the most part, uh, though I have a few investor friends that uh, will invest in companies that they know aren't good and then use the proceeds uh, to do good themselves. That's a viable strategy as well. But what are we missing as investors to close this out? No, I, I think I just riff off of what you just said. These are big business opportunities. So your point of the person who comes up with uh, 
environmentally responsible straw that doesn't fall apart when you're trying to like drink your, you know, <laughs> your drink driving down the highway. Um, straws are a nice feature. I think people enjoy them for a reason and there's no reason you can't make a product there that is environmentally you know, productive. Um, I think most people would recognize that plastics are, are an issue in terms of their, the, their lack of recyclability. So you know, I, I, I know some investors that are not ESG investors that are spending a lot of time trying to figure out who's going to solve chemical recycling or other ways to use plastic more effectively. And I say that in the sense of these are big problems and the people that solve them effectively entrepreneurially will make a lot of money. So this is not a trade. I think it's really important for people to see that this is not a trade-off question of I want to do good in the world or I want to make money. Uh, certainly in the last you know, five years, ESG funds have outperformed the broader market. Now, they've tended to be more tech-heavy, more innovation-heavy, and basic materials and energy have underperformed. But I, I think that the question of whether you can invest in ESG or try to make money, I think that argument is closed. I think you can do both. And there are significant opportunities to lean into innovation and do good in the world. Robert McConaughey, thank you for doing this. I am sure we will revisit it again. This has been the 7 Investing Podcast. We are 7 Investing, empowering you to invest in your future. that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.